This is the wrap-up session, week seven, and we still have a good turnout. I'm beginning to think that Ida's cookies have more to do with the <laughs> people here than anything else. <laughs> Let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Paul, would you do the honors? Thanks, Paul. Okay, this is the week seven of seven, and uh, let me just give you a quick reminder of what we touched on last week. We completed our doctrinal discussions, so to speak, talking about the two-will Christology and how that fit in with the other teachings on the Trinity. And we also discussed uh, two specific modern developments the eternal subordination of the Son and social Trinitarianism. I was uh, critical of both. Let me just encourage you that if these topics interest you, please see Ron Manus on the library for resources and you can inform yourselves on the pros and cons of those two modern developments. This is the week seven, and I'm supposed to be wrapping up, but I don't want to wrap up without giving you just a little bit more, and then we'll wrap up. And what I'd like to talk about for a moment is the confessions came out of the Reformation. Uh, I think it was our second class, maybe. Uh, we were talking about the early church fathers and, and uh, how they testified uh, regarding the fact that there is a triune God even in those early centuries. And somebody asked the question, whose church are we talking about? And the question was coming from the perspective of, isn't this just the beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church that, that we're talking about? This isn't our church. And I flippantly remarked, this is our church we're talking about. There was only one Christian church then, and that's the history of our church. Uh, admittedly, Roman Catholicism, even though they're orthodox with regard to the Trinity, they went off the rails, so to speak, into some uh, strange teachings, mainly because the emperors after Constantine tended to allow a melding of pagan ideas with Christian ideas, and, and that, that just caused nothing but problems. But that was after the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the the Pope gained political power because he stopped Attila the Hun from sacking Rome. And the Bishop of Rome became the Pope of Rome. And because of his political power, he became preeminent in the church in the West. But that's not to say that the early church fathers were our church fathers. And so all of the things we talked about in the creeds that these early church fathers nailed down for us and formulated, I wanted to give you a link a little closer in time to us, and I'm going to do that by showing you the confessions that came out of the Reformation. So now we're talking about the Protestant Reformation. They've separated from Rome, even though they wanted to reform it initially. They were forced to separate from Rome. These are the confessions that uh, they came up with, and we're going to talk for just a moment about a few of them. The 39 Articles in 1571 was the Church of England's attempt to separate themselves from the Church of Rome. 
those 39 articles were eventually revised to some extent and became the 39 articles today of Anglican, the Anglican Communion and Episcopalianism. Following that, the Westminster Confession, coming out of the Westminster Assembly of Divines in 1646, became the controlling doc- document for Presbyterians. The Savoy Declaration of 1658, the controlling confession for Congregationalists. The London Baptist Confession in 1689, the controlling confession for early English Baptists. And what I want to say is that all of these documents confess the orthodox creedal doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ as I have presented so I want, I'm trying to link you to some more, more modern situation to see that our, out of the Reformation, the Reformers were ratifying, agreeing with, and uh, writing the words of the creeds in their confessions. These are all English creeds. There's the Lutheran, the Lutheran Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, and the Heidelberg Belgic Confession, those are other confessions that you can look at, but I just wanted to focus on these, and specifically, we're just going to focus on two, the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession. The Westminster Divines, there's civil strife going on in England at this time, and so you have the the independents trying to come up with their confession of faith apart from the Church of England. So the history of England is pretty interesting and pretty involved. But nevertheless, at this time frame, they come up with the Confession of Faith. And I'd like to just read you excerpts from a few paragraphs just so you can see the creeds in in their words. There is but only one... only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, divine simplicity, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. Specifically with regard to the Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. So those words should be familiar to you because they're part of the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds. There's more in these paragraphs. I'm trying to cut them down so we don't get lost in the weeds. And this one specifically, Christologically speaking, with regard to Christ, touches on the things we we talked about last week and the week before. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, in the Trinity being very and eternal God, 
of one substance, there's homoousia, and equal with the Father, did take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Those are beautiful words, but they're describing something that we can't hardly get our minds wrapped around. Two natures in one person, two natures with all the essential properties thereof, made like unto his brethren in every way, so that he may be our great high priest and our redeemer. That includes not only human nature and a divine nature, but a human will that goes with that human nature and a divine will that was always with his divine nature. Our kinsman kinsman redeemer. So there in the Westminster Confession, you see all those things from the early creeds. Now the Baptists were not to be outdone. They came up with their first confession in 1644. This later one in 1689 resembles very closely to the Westminster Confession, except in critical areas, which you might guess they're in regard to. But the early Baptists were persecuted mainly because of a perceived link between the Anabaptists and continental Europe, where the Anabaptists were are referred to as the radical radicals of the Reformation. There are some good things in the Anabaptists, and there are some way out-to-lunch things with the Anabaptists. And in England, these Baptists were being persecuted because they were associating them with the Anabaptists. So they wanted to put out a statement of faith that was as close to the Westminster Confession as they could get, trying to convince these people that we believe in the same faith, the same God, as you do. And so, in paragraph 2.1, you see virtually the same words. One God, pure spirit, without body, parts, or passions, who is immutable, immense, eternal, etc., having all life, glory, goodness, in and of himself, virtually the same wording. And then in 2.3, regarding the Trinity, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, my word, because it doesn't say persons, it says subsistences, and so you automatically don't get the wrong idea. The Father, the Word, or Son, the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none. The Son is eternally begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God. 8.2, which again corresponds to the Westminster Confession. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity of one substance, And equal with him who made the world did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature 
with all the essential properties, same, same thing, so that the two whole, perfect, and whole natures were inseparably joined together in one person. One person, two natures. Which person is Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man? It has to do with uh, the relations of origin. The Son is begotten, but this is an eternal begottenness. Uh, God has always existed and only exists in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The begottenness is a relation between the Father and the Son, but it's eternal. It's a causal relation. Right, it translates ad extra into a functional relationship, but, but it's a causal relation. Even though the Father caused the Son, it was not of the Father's will. In other words, the Father didn't will to beget the Son. The Father, it was an instantaneous, eternal, necessary act of His being. The fact that He is who He is begot the Son and the Father, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All eternal. By eternal, I don't mean eternity past. I mean eternal outside of time. He's above time. I know that's hard, and people do get hung up on the word generation because they associate with physical begetting and physical generation of a father and a son. There is a father-son relationship that apparently God wanted to communicate to us because he's the one, like I said last week, who named himself Father, Son, and Spirit. We didn't name him Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a father-son relationship. And the Nicene Creed, as well as these confessions, state the Father is of none, begotten of none. The Son is eternally begotten. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Those are eternal processions. These processions ad intra are seen in the missions, if you will, of the three persons in relation to creation and the plan of redemption ad extra. In other words, the the missions relate to these eternal processions, but these eternal processions are not to be thought of as sequential or in time or anything like that. Authority? authority? Yeah. There is authority uh, at extra. There is no authority submission at intra. That was our argument last week. As in the Son was given authority by the Father. Right. In his incarnation. Right. We can only think in creaturely terms, and uh, but that you know that's how they chose to state it in the creeds. That's how the post-Reformation guys chose to maintain that uh, wording in their confessions. Yes, the Greek word is like from uh, John chapter one. Uh, the only begotten is monogenes, and. Uh, as has been pointed out, some of the new Bible translations, they take the root of the Greek word monogenes in, in the Greek letters and say that 
the etymology of that word goes to actually a different Greek word than the word simply meaning to beget. And they said, actually, that may more properly be termed unique or one and only. And so some of the modern translations are doing that. But, as I have mentioned, etymology doesn't determine meaning. It gives you a hint, it gives you some background, but it doesn't determine meaning. Usage determines meaning. And I referenced the fact that Athanasius, who was there at the writing of the 325 Creed, arguing against the Arians, said in Greek, Christ is called monogenes because he is begotten of the Father. Using begotten, which can't be related to that word. There are arguments pro and con. I guess the last part of that word would be as in genetic or genes. Right. So that's that's kind of a sidetrack, but that's I personally think there's uh, there's a just as viable a case. I'll say it this way. There's a viable case for using unique, like some of the modern translations are doing. Instead of saying only begotten, they'll say unique. There's a viable case for that. I think there's just as viable a case for sticking with only begotten, especially in light of the early church fathers and the creed and the words of guys like Athanasius. But I don't want to spend too much time on that. What I will say, though, for your benefit, is that this London Baptist Confession is my confession. This is the confession I hold. And I'm also happy to say there's nothing in the CBC Statement of Faith that contradicts anything in this London Baptist Confession. Perfectly compatible. The London Baptist Confession just goes further and touches on other areas. I will also note that to bring us a little more current in time, in Philadelphia, confession, another Baptist confession, in 1742, adopted by the Baptists in Philadelphia, is verbatim with the London Baptist Confession of 1689, except for two paragraphs they added. They added a paragraph on hymn singing. Yay for hymn singing. They added a paragraph for the laying on of hands by elders. By adding those paragraphs, they renumbered the paragraphs to incorporate those, but that is the difference. So Baptists in the United States in Philadelphia in 1742 said amen to that word for word. No Baptists today really hold to it. But that's their history. So, I'm going to leave that where it sits. Uh, I just wanted to show you that after the Reformation, our Protestant heritage endorses those creeds almost verbatim. Now, to say with Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The heresies that we talked about that first week or two couple of weeks, they continue today. 
Gnosticism. You see elements of Gnosticism in Christian science, religious science, the New Age movement, a number of Eastern groups, for example, the Theosophical Society and others. If you know some of the main ideas in Gnosticism, you'll see them in our postmodern culture. And by studying the Trinity and studying the heresies that they had to combat, you're more attuned to say, wait a minute, that's just Gnosticism. When you come across some of these weird things. Modalism. The United or Jesus-only Pentecostals. Oneness, oneness Pentecostals like T.D. Jakes. I'm sorry for those of you who love T.D. Jakes. But apparently his posse decided a couple of years ago that if they're going to make a national personality out of him, he better get straight on the Trinity or there are going to be people jabbing him. So two years ago he said, you know what? I believe the Trinity now. You can decide whether that was genuine or pragmatic. But prior to that, he was a modalist. Right down the line with what we talked about on modalism. Now he's a Trinitarian, so bless him. The local church, now you may remember, uh, this is witness Lee who took over the Oriental Church from Watchman Nee. Does anybody remember Watchman Nee? There are some good things about Watchman Nee. But when he died, Witness Lee took over. So it's primarily Asian. And they're here. There's, there's local churches here in Dallas. Adoptionism, which is... You can kind of associate it with Mormonism, even though this may be the least of their heresies. But uh, they talk about Christ being adopted and all of us being adopted and becoming God's, uh, however you want to look at it. But I'm just saying that these old heresies never went away. Arianism, which you know, the, the catchphrase was, there was a time when the Son was not. He was created by God. He was a lesser God. You see that in Jehovah's Witnesses? Christadelphianism, which I don't know much about, I just found the word, and Unitarianism in its various denominations. And there's, you know, two or three or four different varieties of Unitarians, but they're all Arians because Jesus Christ was not God. Joe? Yeah, they became big after the Revolutionary War and expanded from there. Thomas Jefferson in 18... 22, uh, which was about four or five years before his death, wrote a letter to a dear friend, and Ron Manus gave me this quote, and I, I should have written it down. But he said something to effect, I am so glad that the doctrine of one God has come back into popularity and it is my hope there is not a young man in the United States today who will not die a Unitarian. Thomas Jefferson was a Unitarian five years before he died. So there you go. Go look that one up. The heresies continue. Understanding the doctrines of the Trinity and the person of Christ provide the ground 
necessary to discern heretical or unorthodox teaching in today's postmodern environment. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, we've moved from postmodernism. Postmodernism, you can think of as from the 60s to the 90s. I think we've moved into a post-Christian era. And that's where we find ourselves in society today. It's not merely postmodern. It's post-Christian. And we're rapidly becoming the minority. Not a bad deal. Oh, this just popped in my head. I'm sorry. Back when the country was founded, here were Christian principles. Christian. That Christian. Get it? Christ. Christos. Christian. And secular principles almost completely overlapped. The secular society adopted Christian views, Christian understandings, Christian principles. I I should have drawn them closer together. 90% overlap. And as time has gone by, here's the Christian worldview and Christian principles. And as time went by, Today, there's secular understanding, secular philosophy, secular morality. And where's the overlap? Well, there's a few. But that's about it, folks. So, I'm through preaching now. And we're going to wrap up by taking a little bit of a look back. The Bible describes the existence of one true God yet attributes the characteristics of this God to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is, this is kind of rehashing what we've been saying through these seven weeks. The biblical evidence maintains the singularity of God as well as the deity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit individually. We'd all agree with that. The doctrine of the Trinity, and we did this in the, talked about some of this in the first couple of weeks, It's not a creative whim. It's not a contradiction of terms. It's the teaching of Scripture. And it was formalized in the ecumenical creeds. The Trinity accounts for and upholds the deity of Christ. And that is paramount. Because all deviations from historical Trinitarianism have compromise the eternal divine nature of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. You start messing with Christ's deity, you're messing with the Trinity. And that's where that's where all those, those heresies, you, you, they had a link to the person of Christ. They refused to make him God. In these deviations, Christ is either demoted, subordinated, or subjugated as a lesser being. And the Trinity prevents that. The doctrine of the Trinity prevents that. When the full deity of Jesus Christ is is denied, the Trinity is either lost or abandoned, either and either unexpectedly lost or intentionally abandoned. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that the Trinity informs the gospel. It not only gives substance to the gospel. I use the term, it's the engine that drives the gospel. It shapes our prayers. Knowing and worshiping our triune God uh, 
has to affect how we think of him and how we pray. And it, it shapes how we pray. And it's also the ground, provides the grounds for our worship. We talked about these in those early weeks. I, I just want to briefly mention them again just to recall them, call them back to mind because I'm, I want to move away from doctrinal technicalities to what it really means to recognize our God as a triune God. But the Trinity is necessary for a coherent understanding of the gospel and redemption. God gives himself to us through the Son in the Holy Spirit. We respond with our praise, confession, and petition in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. The Trinity grounds our worship because it's the only rightful expression in response to the revelation of the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We started off on week one with a declaration or description of the Trinity. And I've, I've added a few words to it based on what we've covered in the creeds. So this is how I would say it now. There is but one God, eternally subsisting in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, the Father unbegotten, the Son eternally begotten, and the Spirit eternally proceeding from both. These eternal processions is what is what was not addressed in that first succinct statement of what the Trinity is. But that's what the creeds added and our post-Reformation ancestors felt was important to keep. So let me give you a couple of quotes in closing. The Trinity is not an abstract theory for debate. I don't want you to think that the intention of this class was to take the Trinity as an abstract theory for debate. Because what we really need to grab a hold of is that our God is Trinity in unity and we need to contemplate our triune God. He is to be worshipped, praised, and adored as our triune God. That's what our motivation should be with our understanding of the Trinity. As Herman Bavick said, the Trinity reveals God to us as the fullness of being. We can't imagine the fullness of his being. He reveals to us the fullness of being, the true life and eternal beauty. How can one God subsist in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Talk about fullness of being. We'll, we'll know better one day than we do now. But in the meantime, that should not motivate us to speculate and debate. That should motivate us to contemplate, worship, praise, and adore our triune God. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have this class. We thank you for the faithful attendance of so many folks. We thank you for enlightening us in some respects, teaching us, hopefully, in some respects, 
to appreciate your triune nature a little better, understand it just a little bit better, even though we recognize we can only speak in creaturely terms and we cannot fully grasp who you are in yourself. You are incomprehensible in that respect. But one day we will know better. One day we will see more clearly. And we look forward to that day, Father, and ask that you protect us and keep us unto that day in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.